Around the world, people are usually quite interested in news about royalty, especially something like a coronation or a new birth. In recent years, the British royal family welcomed the newborn Prince George, a new heir. And after mourning the death of an especially loved king, the Thai people celebrated the coronation of his son. You know, in a dynasty, the son does nothing to earn his position or inheritance. He's simply born into it. Well, our present lesson is about a man who was born into a royal position. That is, from a spiritual point of view. Isaac was Abraham's son and heir to God's covenant promises. Have you noticed that the Bible gives us much more detail about some of its characters than others? Comparatively, little is said about Isaac after the many chapters in Genesis that describe Abraham's life. Even though Isaac lived 180 years, that's five years longer than Abraham lived. Undoubtedly, Isaac must have had many life experiences, but we learned so little of these. We may draw certain conclusions about Isaac's character and his walk with God, but pointing these out doesn't seem to be the writer's primary goal. Rather, the focus of the story is the transfer of the patriarchal covenant from father to son. Oh, and we see God's faithfulness in this. Although Abraham died, God's promises didn't. It seems then as though the Bible has just one primary point to make about Isaac. He was Abraham's son, and for that reason, heir to the patriarchal covenant. He inherited the promises God gave Abraham simply because he was born into the position, just as Prince George and the new king of Thailand were born into theirs. Well, in Genesis 23 to 26, we first see Isaac's position as Abraham's heir being secured. Then, in passages that highlight the ways in which Isaac's life reflected his father's, we see God personally transferring the promised inheritance. So let's begin in chapter 23, where we read of Sarah's death. Abraham, we're told, sought to purchase some land from local Hittites where he could bury her. And the Hittites offered to gift some land to Abraham. However, a gift could later be questioned. Purchasing the land would ensure Abraham's ownership remained undisputed. Once Abraham insisted on buying the land, it seems as though the man who owned it, a guy named Ephron, expected Abraham to bargain with him. However, Abraham paid the full price, again, leaving no room for any further questioning of Abraham's character or ownership. As it turned out, with the exception of a well in Beersheba, it was the only piece of land Abraham ever owned in Canaan. Later, Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah were buried with Sarah at this site. 
Their desire to be buried there indicates their faith in God's promise to give the land to their descendants, a promise none of them lived to see fulfilled. Well, immediately after this information about Sarah's burial, we find the account of Isaac's marriage in chapter 24. Verse 1 says that Abraham was old and blessed by the Lord in every way. All that remained for Abraham to do was to further secure Isaac's position as his heir. Ensuring Isaac had a proper wife was critical, since the patriarchal covenant was being passed to Isaac and his offspring, and the influence of a wife and mother in a family is significant. Therefore, Abraham committed this task to his most senior servant, one whom he obviously trusted and had trained in the ways of the Lord. The servant here isn't identified. It might have been Eliezer, the servant Abraham thought might inherit his state prior, estate prior to Isaac's birth. Well, Abraham had two primary concerns about his son's marriage. First, that Isaac wouldn't leave the land of promise, fearing, I suppose, that he might never return. And second, that Isaac not marry a local Canaanite woman. You remember God had told Abraham that the land was eventually to be taken from the Canaanites in order that his descendants would inherit it. The writer has previously informed us that Abraham possessed information about his brother Nahor's family. While Joshua tells us, the book of Joshua tells us that Nahor was an idolater, the portrayal of his son Bethuel's family here in Genesis 24 leads us to believe that this branch of the family, at the very least, acknowledged the Lord. Rebecca's willingness to leave her family far behind, apparently only because doing so was God's will for her, gives us a very positive insight into her spiritual life. The act of the servant placing his hand under Abraham's thigh in pledge has been explained in a variety of ways. The custom's only referred to in one other place in the Bible where we don't get any further insight. Regardless, it was clearly intended to be a solemn oath. Abraham assured his servant in response that the Lord, the God of heaven, would guarantee his success. The servant traveled from Canaan to the town of Nahor in Aram, Naharaim, in northwest Mesopotamia. A journey of roughly 500 miles could have taken many weeks. So, of course, he went with ample supplies, including, as we see, some bridal gifts. Customarily, women went to the town well for water in the morning and in the evening, avoiding this laborious chore in the heat of the day. Not knowing where to begin to find Abraham's family or the proper wife for Isaac, the servant, servant just used common sense by going to a place where he could, at the very least, gather information and, in the best case, identify a worthy woman. He prayed to the God of his master Abraham for success, and his prayer was specific, bold, and smart. He asked God to cause the woman he'd prepared to be Isaac's wife to voluntarily water his ten thirsty camels. Now that would be a significant task. 
However, if God answered in the way he prayed, there surely wouldn't be much room for doubt that her family was the one whom the servant should meet. And he would have confidence that the woman had good health, in addition to being kind, hospitable, and industrious. As it turned out, before he even finished praying, Rebecca appeared at the well, an indication that God foreknew the prayer of Abraham's servant and was already working to fulfill the request. Just as he prayed, Rebecca responded to his request for a drink by offering to also water his camels. But to make the offer was one thing, to fulfill it another. And this she did completely, proving herself a woman of honor. Furthermore, we're told that she was beautiful, a virgin, and Nahor's granddaughter. Having received such clear direction from the Lord, the servant bowed and worshipped him, thanking him for his loving kindness and provision. Clearly, this servant had been influenced by Abraham's faith. Now, in verse 29, Rebekah's brother Laban is introduced for the first time. Laban appears to be the primary negotiator for Rebekah's hand in marriage, along with his father. Later, Laban becomes an even more significant character in Genesis when his daughters, Leah and Rachel, become the wives of Isaac and Rebekah's son, Jacob. Well, the servant eagerly recounted the whole story of his journey, his prayer, and his encounter with Rebekah to Laban and Bethuel. And in amazement, they could only reply, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here's Rebecca. Take her and go, and let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. The gifts offered to Rebecca's family were in line with the custom of a groom's family paying a bride price. So with the mission accomplished, the servant wanted to return to Abraham as quickly as possible to assure him of his success. Quite understandable, I think. Although her family wished Rebecca to spend more, uh, they could spend more time with Rebecca, also understandable. When asked, Rebecca indicated willingness to comply and leave immediately. Meanwhile, we learned that Isaac had been in Bir Lahai Roy, the place where Hagar first met the angel of the Lord, the place she named the God who sees me. As the servant and Rebecca approached, he was in a field. Isaac was in a field meditating, perhaps indicating prayer. Maybe he was praying about the outcome of the servant's journey and his marriage. But just then, he and Rebecca saw one another from a distance, although neither knew who they were seeing. So Rebecca became Isaac's wife. And we're told that she was a source of great comfort to him following the death of his mother and that he loved Rebekah. Chapter 25 tells of Abraham's death, but not before he took another wife named Keturah. She bore him six sons and these fathered people groups, all of course in fulfillment to God's promise to make Abraham the father of many nations. The placement of this information at the end of Abraham's life story 
further affirms the fulfillment of the prophecy about his many descendants, while also helping to clarify Isaac's unique status among his many brothers. Having been blessed in many ways, in every way, and assured that Isaac was properly married, Abraham, we see, gave gifts to his, the sons of his concubines and then sent them away, ensuring Isaac's position as his sole heir was protected. Then Abraham died at age 175 and was gathered to his people. This is an expression that recurs frequently in the Old Testament. Some have suggested it simply means to be buried alongside one's relatives. However, in Genesis 25, this certainly can't be the case, for Abraham was not buried with his ancestors or even with his extended family. Sarah was the only other person buried at this site. Rather, being gathered to one's people or to go to one's people are expressions that affirm that they've entered an afterlife, where they've joined a community of believers who've gone on before. You know, just as Abraham did all that was necessary to ensure and establish Isaac's position before his death, God the Father has made all the necessary provisions that we might be called his sons and daughters. God the Father has made all the necessary provisions that we might be called his sons and daughters. Old Testament stories often depict New Testament truths. In the previous lesson, we learned that Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his one and only beloved son was a picture of God's willingness to sacrifice his one and only beloved son, Jesus. Now this week, we're seeing that Isaac's position as Abraham's heir is a picture of New Testament sonship. The New Testament is full of verses that speak of us as God's children. In order to understand the doctrine, we need to clarify what biblical sonship does not mean. First, while there's some sense in which all people are universally God's children and that he gives all people life and breath, the Bible does not refer to human beings at large as God's children, but only to those who've entered a saving relationship with him through Christ. We are called his sons and daughters. Second, Although Jesus called us his brothers and sisters in Matthew 12, 50, biblical sonship does not make us Christ's equals. He is the unique son of God because he is a member of the divine trinity. He is God. The Bible does not teach that our sonship elevates us to divinity. Third, like Prince George of Cambridge, We've done nothing to earn our royal position. But unlike Prince George, the standing of our human parents and grandparents isn't transferred to us. That is, God has no grandchildren, only children. Just because our parents or grandparents are Christians doesn't make us Christians. 
Certainly because we live in America, if you live in America, doesn't make you a Christian. God has made all the necessary provisions for us, but it's a personal choice we must each make. How exactly does this happen? How does the Bible explain the way we become God's children? Well, it says that our salvation, our redemption, is accomplished by Jesus' atoning death. But how exactly is it applied to us? There are four doctrinal terms used to describe this. Regeneration, conversion, justification, and adoption. Now, regeneration is the work of God alone in which he reaches in and awakens us spiritually from our previously spiritually dead condition. Conversion is our willing response in which we sincerely repent of our sins, place our trust in Christ for salvation, and desire to begin obeying him. Sometimes we pray a prayer just to affirm that decision. Justification means that God has past judgment, and we are no longer condemned. He transfers or imputes Christ's substitutionary death for our own and considers Christ's perfect life as a substitute for the life we could never live. And then adoption. Adoption is the act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. By adopting us, God has elevated us to the position of being his own sons and daughters. You see, just as Abraham did what was necessary to secure Isaac's position as his son and heir, in Christ, God has done what is necessary that we might be secured in our position as his children. Understanding our identity as sons and daughters of God, is critical to our transformation and our ability to live in obedience to God. Beloved Pastor Ray Stedman, now with the Lord, explains this beautifully. He says, Behavior depends on seeing and recognizing who you are and the basic facts about your identity. The Word of God tells us the way to become different is to become changed at the very basis of your being by faith in Christ so that you are something different. And if you believe what you are, Stedman explains, you'll begin to act that way. It's a truth that God intends for us to return to when we are in trouble. Stedman says if you're having difficulty handling your behavior— whether you are not doing what you want to do or doing what you don't want to do. The way to handle it is to remind yourself of what God has made you to be. You are not a slave, helplessly struggling against a cruel, powerful master. No, you are a son, a son or daughter of the living God with power to overcome the evil, even though it is a struggle to do so. 
And though you may be temporarily overcome, Stedman reminds us, you are never ultimately defeated because you are already constituted children of God. No matter what happens to us, that is what we are. My dear believing friend, do you think of yourself as less than you truly are? Or do you see yourself as a royal son or daughter of the Lord, the King of Heaven? Well, Isaac was Abraham's promised chosen son, and as such, he became heir to the patriarchal covenant and the promises of God that were part of that covenant. The remainder of chapter 25 and chapter 26 further portray this. Immediately after Abraham's death is recorded, Genesis 25:11 says that after Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac who then lived near Bir Lahai Roi. Now, this statement affirms that Isaac was beginning to inherit God's covenant promise of blessing. And next, in verses 12 to 18, we see Ishmael acknowledged and then dismissed since this benefit didn't belong to him. Ishmael was not, was Abraham's firstborn, but not his heir. God told Hagar that Ishmael would live in hostility toward all his brothers. That prof- prophecy is confirmed here in Genesis 25:18. Now, while some of Keturah's descendants actually have names that indicate a link to Arab peoples, Arabs themselves trace their roots directly to Ishmael and Hagar. Isaac's descendants through Jacob are, of course, the Jewish people. And the long-standing tension between Jews and Arabs, combined with the ongoing strife among the Arab nations, proves the fulfillment of this prophecy that Ishmael would live in hostility toward all his brothers. Well, less space by far is given in Genesis to the life of Isaac than any of the other patriarchs. The statement that Rebekah was barren is our first clue about why less is said. Isaac's father, Isaac's life was a reflection of his father's life in so many ways that highlighting some of these similarities says about as much as needs to be told about him. Isaac prayed and as a result, Rebecca conceived. Abraham, you remember, waited 25 years for Isaac's birth. Similarly, similarly, Isaac waited 20 before his sons were born. Now, during Rebecca's pregnancy, unusual movement within her caused her to inquire of the Lord, why is this happening to me? And the Lord answered Rebecca. She learned that she was carrying twins who would father two nations. The Lord tells her they will be separated. As it turns out, the Israelites and the Edomites were regularly at war with one another. Additionally, the Lord told her that the older twin would serve the younger. That was information Rebecca surely would never have forgotten. The names given to the twins have a great deal of significance, especially for their later lives. The name Jacob connected in sound and sense to the noun heel. 
since Jacob was born, grasping the heel of his older brother. However, later in life, this idea took on a fuller meaning as the one who trips up another by grasping the heel or one who deceives. The name Esau has a loose connection with the word seer, S-E-I-R, the early name for Edom to the southeast of the Dead Sea, where Esau later lived. The Hebrew word red is also related to the word Edom, and the word hairy is similar to the word seer. So these words were uh, seem to have been chosen to portray in Esau the nature of Edom, a later arch rival of Israel. And from birth, the boys were different. As they grew, their preferences reflected these differences. Esau, the older, preferred the outdoor life. Jacob was content at home. And we're told that Isaac favored his older son, while Rebekah favored Jacob. Now, Jacob and Esau must have known about the God their father Isaac and grandfather Abraham, their father and grandfather's God, from the time they were young. They surely also knew of the covenant promises to their family. So one would think that Jacob and Esau would have been really eager to embrace this God of their fathers and his promises. Even though they couldn't have understood all the details that special assignment entailed, as we have them from our perspective in history. However, Genesis 25, 29-34 records that Esau despised his birthright. He valued it so little that he traded it to Jacob for a single meal. Now, the birthright gave the oldest son the right to inherit the estate of one or both parents. It also included a number of other privileges and responsibilities. The son with the birthright ranked second only in leadership to his father in the family. And he received a double share of his father's inheritance. That is twice as as much as two other sons combined would inherit. The father had the right to ignore the birth order in granting the position. Additionally, it could be sold or traded by the eldest son himself. And this is what Esau did. Now, we may applaud Jacob's eagerness to be aligned with God's promises, but the passage implies that he took advantage of his brother in order to do so. It hints at the deceptive, scheming nature we see further developed in Jacob as the story continues. Esau's willingness to trade such privileges and responsibilities so quickly is also a statement about his nature. Hebrews 12.16 condemns Esau as godless. His carelessness about inheriting God's promises could only reflect carelessness toward God in general. He was spiritually apathetic. Now, Genesis 26 is the only chapter in Genesis devoted entirely to the life of Isaac. The chapter highlights the similarities between the lives of Isaac and Abraham. This isn't to say that Isaac demonstrated the depth of character that was shown by his father, but the similarities were recorded to establish that the promises and plan of God were passed from father to son. Isaac was heir to Abraham's position and possessions.
First, we learn that a famine drove Isaac to Gerar, where Abimelech was king. Remember, while Abraham went to Egypt in a famine, the Lord specifically uh, remember that Abraham went to Egypt in a famine. But here we've got the Lord specifically warning Isaac against going there. And except for that one difference, the remainder of what the Lord said to Isaac is quite familiar to us. The Lord repeated his patriarchal promises, affirming to Isaac directly that he would work through him as he had his father. Abraham established his son's position prior to his death, but God himself established Isaac as the possessor of the covenant promises. Although Isaac obediently remained in Gerar, we learn next that he followed his father's poor example in lying about his relationship to his beautiful wife, claiming she was merely his sister. Now, does that sound familiar? It seems Isaac inherited Abraham's weaknesses as well as his strengths. His excuse was the same as his father's. I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Third, both father and son increased their wealth in Gerar, and both had conflict over wells with the locals. According to verse 33, Isaac returned to Beersheba, the place where he lived with his father when instructed by God to sacrifice him. At this location, the Lord appeared to Isaac, identifying himself as the God of your father Abraham, and once again affirming his promises to bless Isaac and to increase his descendants. God said he was doing this for Abraham's sake. Isaac inherited God's promises on the basis of sonship. He was Abraham's heir. In response to this encounter, Isaac built an altar and called on the name of the Lord, like his father had done on more than one occasion. And finally, just as had happened with Abraham, Abimelech recognized the Lord's blessing on Isaac's life, and understanding the advantage of maintaining a peaceful coexistence with him, sought a peace treaty. Isaac agreed to the treaty as his father had. Clearly, Isaac's power and influence in the region was no less than what Abram had. His servants uncovered yet another well, continuing the evidence of divine blessing on Isaac. Well, in this story, this is the history of our salvation. And in it, we see the covenant promises of God passed from Abraham to his son and heir, Isaac. You know, we who are in Christ are also God's sons and daughters and his heirs. I hope you've gotten that by now. And as his children, the Bible teaches that we will also inherit his kingdom. God's children inherit his kingdom. I've already described our adoption as God's sons and daughters. Adoption wasn't fully realized by Old Testament believers. Although they related to God as their father, the benefits of adoption couldn't be fully realized until after Christ completed his work and sent his son to indwell us. Now, in a future day, we'll receive even more benefits of our inheritance. 
eternal life in God's presence in our new bodies. Currently, the Holy Spirit is a deposit on our inheritance, and through Him, we receive many benefits of sonship. What are these benefits? Well, first, we recognize the Bible as truth when we read it, and the Spirit teaches us by it. When we read it, it's alive for us. We feel God speaking to our hearts. We also have a desire at times, even an urgency, to pray. And we're empowered to live the Christian life. Although our sin nature, our sin nature and our enemy will try to condemn us and convince us we can't succeed, the Holy Spirit within us continually encourages us that he will work through us what we can't accomplish on our own. And he renews our desire to live in obedience. Rather than feeling condemned, we feel empowered by him to succeed. We've inherited other benefits and privileges. We feel a special love and bond for other Christians. You meet someone, and you know the minute you discover that person's a Christian, you just feel a kinship with them. And oh, how wonderful that we also sense God is our Father and Jesus our brother. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Sometimes the Spirit of God comes over you at an unexpected time or place, and you suddenly sense his special love, protection, and provision for you as his child. You may feel overwhelmed by the sense of his nearness and dearness. But even when you don't sense this, even if you have stumbled into sin, there's still a witness in your heart that you belong to God. He is your Father. All of these are marks that we are God's children and that the Holy Spirit indwells us as a deposit on an even greater future inheritance. Nothing could be more life-changing for us than this reminder, morning after morning, of our identity in Christ. We are God's own sons and daughters. You know, many of us know professing Christians who've never understood their true identity. And because of this, they've only experienced the transformational power of being a son or daughter of God in a very small measure. Could that be true of you? Our position is a noble one, and our inheritance is beyond measure. This is the promise of the Lord. It's how he sees us and wants us to see ourselves. Thank you.